Live on Cholamoid, it's the J3 Amateur Hour Podcast. To be clear, it's not Cholamoid right now. Jordan's in the moment. I'm in the moment. He's always in the moment. Welcome, everybody, to the J3 Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan. I'm here with... It's Josh. It's Yoel. Guys. I actually felt funny about saying Yoel, because it's really J3. Jeremy. Yeah, it's Jeremy, but we'll go with Yoel. Anyway. (laughs) Fair. We give the people what they want, and I think a lot of people thought there'd be a little bit of a hiatus over the Pesach break, but here we are, back. Yeah, I mean... I don't know when we're dropping this, but... Podcasts that take off Cholmoid are just amateur hour. Amateur hour. Amateur hour. Okay. We have some housekeeping items to take care of first. Number one, I want to give you all some credit. I encountered a bunch of people over the weekend that are big fans of Yoel. No surprise. They enjoy and appreciate his humor. They think that he's very organic and real in sharing his thoughts and his kind of stream of consciousness with the air. So, uh, Yoel, what do you think about that? Uh, You have fans. I feel I'm being set up right now by you guys. I'm not sure for what. I do know we have um, the, the, the same hater who repeatedly uh, reaches out to you guys, telling them how bad I am. <clears throat> I could uh, go back and, and search. But I do appreciate... That person th- actually complimented you as improving. Right, said I wasn't as bad, Right, which is great. <laughs> but um, no, no, I, I appreciate uh, my mom uh, giving feedback and saying that she enjoys uh, hearing me on air. No, I'm being honest. There are a lot of people that do enjoy you. Oh, um, I don't know what Thank they're you. thinking, but okay. The other thing, we've done some research. I have secretly conspired with our producer who has put together a little bit of evidence that supports one of Yol's contention. And I will now play it for the show. For the audience. For the audience. Here we go. This will be our last night of service. Wow. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. Wow. 3535 Northwestern. Yes. Wow. And Palatine. Wow. 20 to 16. Wow. They went to jail. Wow. That's the handle. Wow. Till they all graduated eighth grade. Wow. The wow. The person that really taught me when I was really young was Shlomo Bogoff. Wow. In the Riz Carlton in West Palm Beach. Wow. And he always also would have Super Bowl parties. Wow. <laughs> Any comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think after like 15 hours of recording and I say wow 10 times, that's not a big deal. No, that is, that's an inordinate amount. You could say wow. I, I have no issue with the wow. It's just the wow they need a follow-up. Okay, you know what? Now I'm going to start saying some things about you guys because I do listen back. Okay, I don't go. And, and I'll notice that someone here says you know constantly, like before they say any yep. sentence. Fair. I actually went this speech as a child. I'm not going to say who. I didn't, didn't say who it was. I used to always say the word like all the time and I was like told like to remove that word from my vocabulary. So some people you know, like this and like, no, no, like you're not really saying anything. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, an, what's the word I'm looking for here? You seem speechless. I mean, I think it's, maybe un- the word it's is unfair. wow. It's, it's, you could, you could, you, you could piece together anything like that. If you take no, f- you 15 can't. hours of, uh, of, of footage of, you know, of recorded time. Speaking of 15 hours of footage, we, we did, uh, the company that does our marketing, uh, did poll the audience and actually a majority of our listeners actually enjoy when the pod is actually longer than an hour. So really? speaking of, yeah. It's funny because I feel like early on, some people were complaining that it was too long. Well, I think when we did the research, people seemed to think that anything over an hour was not going to be listened to at the same level as under an hour. See, I think that's more like a sheer. Like if you see like a, like a Dafiomi is like over an hour, then it's like, oh, Or man, like over like right. 20 minutes. Yeah, well, that's also <laughs> true. But it's also funny because there was a third option. There was under an hour, over an hour, and don't care, don't listen. But... It seems to be that many of those people who responded, don't care, don't listen, have given us feedback on our episodes. Really? So, yes. So perhaps there is some trolling on our social media. Right. Shocking. Yes. 
Who would have thought? It seems like the numbers have been steadily increasing, though, since we started this. I think so. It seems like our audience is growing. Yeah, including some of my family members. Big fans. Really? Shout out to one of my daughters. Really? But the, she, okay. does, but she does not <laughs> want sure to be named. Do that? She does not <laughs> want to be named. Name. But there is a shout out. Okay. Quick question, guys. On Friday, there was a threat of a tornado. Josh, were you nervous about the tornado? Were you following it? I always follow tornadoes. I was not nervous, but I'm a big weather guy, as I've said on this podcast. So at what point during the day were you confident that the tornado would not hit? By like five, six o'clock, I knew we were out of the out of the immediate danger. Even though like the the theater that fell happened at seven o'clock? Our, our area, yeah. I think, was, was, was running through clear, there. right, by like 6, 7 o'clock. But by the time Shabbos started, we were kind of out of the major Okay, what major I'm getting zone. at, Josh, is did you see any footage of the tornado touching down in Arkansas? I did not. You didn't see any pictures or videos of the tornado? I'm only concerned about what directly affects me. Okay. I, did, I did not see. Well, I don't know where we went. <laughs> <laughs> I might just cut out this whole thing. I was trying to get a wow from him. <laughs> we'll get it later, organically. All right, I have a question. Oftentimes we hear back from some of our listeners, some of them feel that, you know, we have a reach and we can really be like a meaningful, you know, podcast and shed light on, you know, certain matters of the from community, whether it's, you know, charity or resources or giving back. And there's other people that are just for the sort of, you know, reliving, you know, the old days and other people just looking for a laugh. Is there like a target audience that that you feel like a specific, almost like a specific listener that you're just trying Trying to either entertain or uh, inform. It's an excellent question. I got to tell you, Josh, you can go first. Yeah, I mean, I, I look. I like person the episodes that I think are a little more meaningful. That's just my own take. As I like when we have guests that can kind of contribute or have contributed to things going on in the community, whether now or in the past. But do you have certain people that like you expect? Like you're visioning them, uh, like sitting in their car listening. Not really. No, I just. But I do. I do tend to enjoy certain episodes more than others, but I'm open to a lot of different kinds of things. Gotcha. Jordan, who are you trying to impress? Nobody. Really? I If I feel that we put something worthwhile out there, I'm happy. I, you know, I, it doesn't matter. I want, I want to disagree with that. Why? I believe you do have one listener in mind. Who? Mrs. Iris Bass. Um, Don't lie. I think... <laughs> no, it's not even me. <laughs> if she doesn't... First of all, absolutely not, because... If she doesn't like the episode, I'm fine with that also. But you value her commentary. I value a lot of people's commentary. But hers more than more than most. Maybe she listens to a lot. I value her. I value hers more than most. I'll she's a big podcast fan. Yeah, so, so she, she knows, knows what she's, she's about. caught up in pop culture and knows history and knows the Jewish community. So I feel like you have her in mind when you're. Um, no, that would not be the case. <laughs> See, I feel like I'm a major disappointment to like those people that are looking for like meaning, like in their life and changing people's lives. Because why? I feel like you're an inspiration. Yeah. No, I know. I, I think a lot of people appreciate. I sort of feed into like just the wild takes and like just the questions out of left field, which I mean, so a, lot, a lot of times a lot of people have thought of. They just never like thought to actually. They're afraid a person. to say it. Right. You like, have the confidence. To like put I it even out there. Ha- like I even have a question today that I wanted to just you know throw you guys before okay. a guest. Yeah. For a surprise guest. Let's Hit go. Us. Jordan, you want to introduce our surprise guest, or it's not a surprise. It's anymore? not a surprise. We are having the great Rabbi Leonard A. Matanki. All right. So do you know. First of all, do you know what A stands for? I do. Arthur, obviously. Yep. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, oh wow. You really, you really <laughs> didn't want to get complete guess. Wow. Yep. I'll take that. Anyway, um, speaking, I said wow again. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, you <laughs> take that out. Speaking, Do not take any of that out. Speaking of Rabbi Leonard Matanki, so I actually originally knew him as Lenny. 
growing up next door to my next door neighbors, the Shiners, related to, you know, and he always used to talk about Lenny was before actually he became a rabbi. But the, the question comes to be, at what point when you start becoming, like when you become an adult, do you start addressing people by their names as opposed to Mr.? For instance, let's say I went to Josh's house as a child, I would call his father Mr. Rosen. He was a doctor. Call he, he was a doctor. Rosen. Well, Did you ever go to his house as a child? I th- maybe once. Like, I think it was like basketball on Shabbos. Is that possible? Always, yeah. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> I was playing that. But like, the point is, like, at what point do, do you start addressing them by their first name? You know, you're in your 40s, or some of us are in our 40s. And I mean, I know Jordan has repeatedly told us he's in his mid to low 30s. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, that's just a, reminding us. That's an excellent question. For right. real, for like real. certain people, and I just, I, I'll just go along with it. Like I'm 45, and I'll just, I'll call someone in their 60s, Mister, or someone in their 50s, like Mister, and I just. But it's weird because, like, when someone kids you, call someone, me, someone you like, know or someone you don't know, there's well, a difference. It, I think it depends on the relationship. You know, uh, like for, yeah. for instance, you know, I'll give an example. I work with uh, Elon McGenzie's father, right? So I mean, I always call him, you know, Raven McGenzie. You know, that's his, you know, name. But you know, but he works in the business, and people call him Mayor. You know, so it's well, like, that's not a good example because I feel like professionally, sometimes there's more of a camaraderie that's different than when you when you're socially with somebody. Gotcha. I mean, right. So that makes sense. You know, but like for me, like even the other way, like when kids call me like Mr. Goldberg, like that's I feel that's weird. But they call me Yol. It's also they don't weird. call you Rabbi Goldberg? I think I've like, seen in a lot of publications. You've yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Yeah, it's a little weird. <laughs> but um, yeah, we don't have to get into that. Uh, never had smicha. But like you know, like for instance, I, I just think most people just avoid addressing people directly, and they'll find a situation where not to address the person straight on. You know, no, but, I, that's odd. I would always revert at, to an elder as a Mister or Doctor, whatever their title is, until they say. Call me by my first name. Our guest is outside. I'll be right back. Do we continue this conversation? I, and Jordan? I think it's also it's a very <laughs> odd conversation. I think it's I think it's more based on what the expectation is of the person you're addressing. Okay. We are very honored to have the presence of Rabbi Leonard A. Matanki with us tonight. Rabbi, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Rabbi, have you listened to the to the show at all? No, but uh, really? I, I've listened to the three of you over the years, so I have a feeling uh, I've listened to the show as well. Okay. Right. I feel oftentimes, you know, we have guests who come in and sort of, you know, we sort of say how, from at what point do we know the rabbi and what our relationship is, you know, with the, or with our guest. I actually first knew Rabbi Matanki as my next door neighbor's cousin. I actually used to always address him as Lenny. So I think it was even you know, before, and then, um, you know, I, once it was the Kins, you know, I guess basically like we moved over to, to Kins, he became the rabbi, but I still wasn't really part of the show. Then he was actually the rabbi of my wife's family. So throughout, I knew him as Cousin Lenny and then the uh, rabbi of my wife's family. And then, you know, my rabbi and my kids' rabbi at our show. So that's sort of my background. Never had him as a principal or any sort of uh, education with a rabbi. Well, let me start there. And we'll, we'll, it's fast forwarding a little bit. But when, when Josh and Yoel, when you guys were at Ida Crown, Rabbi, were you not teaching there yet? I've been teaching at Ida Crown since 1981, but I was teaching girls' classes, so the boys never had me. You were at the ATT, though, right? I was at the ATT. I was the associate superintendent of the ATT. And there was a picture of the rabbi saying, uh, I think in my yearbook or one of the yearbooks, uh, it was a used car salesman. Was Was that true? That I don't remember. There was, there was a picture. Like, would you buy a car from this guy? That was how I knew Rabbi. He taught like girls, like Gemara or something like that, like in the Tana- early nineties, Tanakh, Tana- Tana- or whatever. Yeah. All sorts of things. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's get started there because Rabbi, you are one of the rabbinic leaders of this city and one of the guides, not only educationally with Ida Crown Jewish Academy, but in your role 
with uh, Congregation KINS and then with the CRC and the ATT and the RCA and every single organization that you've led or a part of. But I want to kind of understand how you got to that place. Take me back. The Rabbi, you are a multi-generational Chicagoan, right? Well, uh, well second-generation Chicagoan. Fair. That's, right. that's multi. That's multi. Arnold Matinke was born in Europe. Correct. My grandparents on both sides were born in Europe. Okay. And you grew up in West Rogers Park as well? No, I grew up first in Albany Park. We moved to West Rogers Park in 1966. Okay, fair. Jordan's so, already started. Jordan's, Jordan's research is... Uh, See, I was always stuff. told that Jordan did the research. Oh, well, I've got, I've got he research. Used, he used Hold research. on. Wait. I'm just setting this up. Okay. Rabbi, your, your father was a very famous, I would even say, the Chicago Tribune called your father an article about Barry Chrysler. The Tribune described your father as a well-connected Chicago real estate entrepreneur. He had many famous developments, such as Wilshire Green, the coach-like condominiums, Town Square Apartments. He wrote a book. He was the head of many boards. He was in the real estate business, and your family is still in the real estate business. So growing up, was that your path? At what point did you think that you would join the rabbinic field? Well, my path was to be educated, and so I continued my education. I was a business major. I have my, my undergraduate degree started. I was looking at accounting, and then afterwards I went into management. And I did have some licensure as well with securities in case I wanted to go into the business. But I chose early on that I was going to go towards education. I think it was because an outgrowth. Because that's where the money was? Or? That's it. It always yeah. was. And I think it was an outgrowth <laughs> of all the years that I was involved, whether in B'nai Akiva or I started teaching Hebrew high school. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was teaching Hebrew high school already, so kids who were a few years younger than I was. Did you have a teacher or a principal that inspired you to kind of choose that path? I was fortunate I had a lot of them. The, there were so many different teachers, both at the academy and before that in Hillel Torah, that uh, were really inspiring people. I'll give you some of the so names. You, some you of were you in Hillel Torah K through 8? No, I went to Solomon Schechter from K until third grade, okay. then fourth grade through eighth grade Hillel Torah. And where was Hillel Hill Torah? was in the same location? or It was just a lot smaller. Okay. When, I, when I first started Hillel Torah, there was the middle building. Okay. And then they had the first edition. And since then, there have been a few other editions. Sure. And so all of those, those teachers, you know, uh, Rabbi Kushner was a teacher of mine. Rabbi Van Leeuwen was a teacher of mine. And I know I'm going to leave some people out. I apologize to them up front. There was a Marcone in fourth grade who inspired me. The first time I learned Chumash was when they started in fourth grade. In the academy, I had uh, Rabbi Pfefferman Zal, Rabbi Eisenberg Zal, Rabbi Silver Zal. We had so many extraordinary teachers over the years that uh, all of that seemed natural. And then at the same time, I was in B'nai Akiva and I was in Madrid and kind of came together. And always attended Mosheva. I always attended Mosheva from when I was in after fifth grade and straight through. S until now, basically. Uh, Does were, the Rav still go up there? I, generally, I'm up there for a day or so, but uh, last year I was there for a week. I may be there again for a week this summer. And then you continued on at the Hebrew Theological College after high school. Correct. And from what I understand, you are one of the very few musmachim of Rabbi Moshe Herschler. I'm one of three musmachim of Rabbi Herschler. Can Rabbi I guess Herschler. the others? I wouldn't remember them right now. Rabbi uh, Kenzer? No, he wasn't. Oh, man, man. <laughs> I thought he was. Rabbi Zev Shandilov? No, he wasn't. <laughs> but he got smicha the same year as you. Rabbi Shandilov and I were chavrusas, so we actually got smicha on the same day. Rabbi, would you like a job of uh, being the new research person? <laughs> I think <laughs> I need to help out. But, uh, well, this younger generation, what can we do? Yeah. No, Rav, Rav Hirschler Zetzal was uh, the Rosh Hashiva. He was 
uh, came to Chicago. He did not give smicha to anyone because he felt he was an interim. He came after Rebaran Salavechik Zetzal left, and then before the yeshiva hired a full-time uh, new Rosh Hashiva. And so in that interim role, he gener- he was not signing any of the smichas, but I had a very close relationship with him. And so in addition to my smicha from the yeshiva, I also have a smicha from him. Okay, so then related to that, at the same time, you were, you know, a Madriya company, Kiva, and educating in different ways. In 1978, at the age of 20, you published for B'nai Kiva a booklet of games to play on Shabbos. Well, almost, but not exactly. It was published by the American Zionist Youth Foundation. Can and, I? Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll right continue to correct you. I got to ask this question. It's 54 pages and contains instructions for 157 different games with names such as Lung Capacity, Shinui, Shinui, Haman Lost His Head, and Shimon Omer. Were you concerned at the time that you'd be relentlessly made fun of for this book? <laughs> Actually, um, a couple of things. You'll get it right eventually. Um, there, there are uh, 200 games in the book. The book uh, was about 100 and some pages long. In terms of the names of the games, those were the games we played on Shabbat games. It's still being, it's actually still available. I was just um, somewhere recently out of town and I was speaking with someone and then someone walked up to me and told me that they that they knew me from the from the game book from 78. They said, it's a little while since So <laughs> it was a Masora of games, not necessarily games that you came up with? I, they weren't the ones I invented, no. Okay. The games were were collected. So, Rabbi, I just want to thank you for being the first person to hand Jordan, like, five L's in a row. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. I'm used to it. I, I, I mean, I'm just th- thinking back, you know, I went to Sniff myself. Shout out to uh, Sniff Kvartzion. But, like, I remember, like, they were always, like, they always had, like, a, not like I don't know if it was a book of games. There was always a list of games that they came up with, like, streets and alleys and like, so like those different were, games. those were using mine. In fact, they're still being used. The OU publishes every week a handbook, a choveret, something every week for the groups and shuls. And they take the games from the Shabbos game book without credit, but they take the games every week from it. <laughs> this book might be your <laughs> biggest lasting <laughs> legacy at the end of the day. Who knows? So Rabbi, so you got smicha from HTC and then you immediately went into education and teaching. And Well, actually it was before. I started teaching, the first class I started teaching was in 1974, and I taught consistently. I received smicha in 1981, so I had already been teaching before then. In 74, you were how old? 74 is when I was a sophomore in high school. And you were teaching at that I point? I was teaching for the Hebrew high school. I was asked by the ATT, asked me if I would be willing to do it, and then I, then I continued to teach classes for the Hebrew high school. So you were all, always like heavily involved. Like if someone in your age group, you were always the one who was like the most involved, let's say, with youth groups or B'nai no, Kiva, were, or, or, or everyone was like this, and in, you just lasted. Well, in my time, yeah. in my yeah. time, for example, in B'nai Kiva, anyone who had a senior position, B'nai Kiva was a madrich in Chavraya Bet, which was the high school program, there was an expectation that we had to learn in the base medrash. The, the guys had to learn in the base medrash. I'm so, so happy that that fell off when I was, <laughs> when I was, like, I was Chavraya yeah. Bet, but was not, yeah, so no base I, medrash requirements. So I remember when then I just in fact, told the story, Rebetzin Lichman passed away. Her husband it was Rosh Yeshiva after Rav Herschler. I remember when Rabbi Lichman came to the yeshiva and he brought a group of guys from Lakewood. And they had never met anyone in B'nai Akiva. And they had never imagined that anyone in that B'nai Akiva group would ever be in a base medrash. And it created this extraordinary dissonance for them, trying to figure out. The end, I had chavrusas with them, and Uh and we became close friends. But it was a different time. 
And speaking about that different time, it seems like in the in the 60s and 70s, Chicago was very heavily populated with people that were fervent religious Zionists. You know, the Mizrahi was one of the more powerful organizations in the city. There are still a lot of the population, it might be the same amount of people, are still, you know, identify as religious Zionists and associate with their institutions, but the community has grown. And there's certainly people talk about somewhat of a right word, right word shift. At what point did you start seeing changes in the community in that regard and with the influence of those institutions? Well, I think the, the you can start from the different major organizations or institutions began from the right wing. 1960 tells Yeshiva opened up in what had been the Adas, which was the, the Adas Shul. That's where they opened up. As, as a young child, I actually uh, was in, in that base medrash for a a Benzrahi event. So Tells, that had one impact, but Tells was more insular, staying within the neighborhood. Then when the Lakewood Kolel opened up, there was another piece. And each one of these pieces contributed to shifts within the community. The unfortunate piece about it is that really the Chicago Jewish community in general has not grown. We've lost a lot of people. And in terms of the size of the Orthodox Jewish community, it's grown. I don't know if it has grown as large as what was once called the traditional and Orthodox community. So there are more from people when you walk on the streets. When I was growing up, if someone wore a Strymel, their last name was Meisel's. That was it. There was no other right. family. And everybody, we knew everybody. If you, if someone wore a Yarmulke outside, part of it was not everyone wore kippot outside. But if you wore a Yarmulke outside, you know, my, my parents said, who is that? Nowadays... There's no hope of, the, of knowing everybody. Yeah, so like we, the first week I went to Israel, you know, like you walk down the street, you see a Jew on, on Shabbos, you say good Shabbos, and right. looking at you like you're crazy. So like, <laughs> then I learned pretty, you know, pretty quickly in Yerushalayim, you don't say good Shabbos to people. So, Rabbi, you were teaching for a long time, since as early as a sophomore in high school, 1974, Smicha in 81, and you continue teaching. At what point did you, did it become interesting to you to become a con- congregational rabbi? It wasn't a, a goal. I've been very fortunate different positions have presented themselves to me as opposed to my chasing after the position. It actually goes back to 19, I'm just trying to remember the year, about 1991, 90, 1990, somewhere in that range, where Rabbi Rhine of Congregation Beth was retiring. I had grown up in Beth in Albany Park, and then I had also attended Beth when my grandfather's out was moved into this neighborhood, into West Rogers Park. And I received a phone call on a Sunday from Rabbi Kushner's out. And Rabbi Kushner said, would you be willing to throw your hat in? Not literally, because I didn't wear a hat. Would you be willing to throw your hat into the ring to be the rabbi at Beth Yitzchuk? He said, it's, it's not a big deal. It's just on Shabbos, not a lot of time. But it would be a good mix because Beth Yitzchuk was one of the key modern Orthodox shuls. Would you be willing to do it? I made a phone call to Rabbi Well, who was my boss at the Associated Talmud Torah. He says, you want not? And that Sunday, and I think it was uh, two Shabbatot later, I had my problem. I think the week after was the board meeting, and uh, I became a rabbi. How long were you at Beis Yitzchak? First of all, I, I was there for four years. And yep. at that point, you were, your yep. official role, your day-to-day job was teaching at the ATT and at Ida Crown. Well, I, my full-time position was the Associated Talmud Torah. I was the Associate Superintendent. I volunteered to continue teaching a class always at Ida Crown. Once I had gone full-time to ATT, I moved over, but I wanted to continue to teach. And so I would volunteer to teach a class, whether it was one period or two periods, depending on the class. And uh, then I was also doing the shul. 
And so you were not a congregant when you became before you became rabbi. In no, other words, you dive in there earlier historically, but just I was not, a congregant at Anshul right, Matala. At Matala, okay, really. Okay, my, were, there, were there a lot of people competing for that job? It had come down to one other person, and it looked like the other person was going to get the position, which is why I received the phone call. That person was more in the Haredi camp, and uh, the core of the shul was still within the religious Zionist modern Orthodox camp, and that's why that's why they called me. Do you feel that a lot of let's say you know people that you know grew up in Mizrahi, you know, you know, a lot of them go on to college and, and get jobs, and very few of them go into you know, rabbinics, you know, versus more right wing where, you know, they're in kolal and then they're looking to do something in rabbinics. So do you feel that you were not like like their last savior, but like they were just trying to shift to find somebody who fits their hashkafa and sort of that, not, that was the most important issue. But do you feel like you were targeted by many in the community? You know, Rabbi Kushner certainly was part of, you know, Mosheva and, you know, and, and Mizrahi that they tried to go ahead and sort of in order to continue what it was in the 50s and 60s, you know, to continue that into the future. I think that the decision was you want to have a rabbi who reflects the values of the shul. Sure. And I think that's where they wanted, why they asked me to consider being the candidate for it. In terms of what was also happening differently in our community at the time, the yeshiva, Skokie Yeshiva at the time, we had a dozen fellows in the Yeridayashir. Of the dozen fellows, I think there were three or four of us who ended up going into Rabonus. But bringing people in from out of town, bringing in New Yorkers from YU, was still a new concept. Most of the people, most of the shuls in, in Chicago had musmachim from the Hebrew Theological local. College. Local. So I think that was part of those shifts going on as well. Okay, so after a couple of years at Beis Yitzchak, you moved to Kins. Right. Tell us about that shift, because it also involved going from a modern Orthodox congregation to a traditional shul, and it also involved the erection of a mechitza for the first time there. So what is the backstory there? And removal of the microphone. Right. Well, so it, there's not a lot of backstory. There's a, a story. The story actually starts with Josh's grandfather, Bernard Mir Zal, was one of the extraordinary lay leaders of our community. He was also an educator. Uh, he was the principal of the Hebrew school at, Mikd- at Mikdash El Hagro, and before that at other Hebrew schools as well. He and a few other gentlemen were leadership at, at KINS, and when they were the leadership at KINS, they watched that slowly the shul was declining. There was a situation even in the winter where there were a couple of times where they had to go to another minion, which was in the shul, it was called the young adult minion, to be able to get to recruit a couple of people to help out with a minion because they were short on a Shabbos when it was when it was cold outside. And this was a shul that peaked 600, 700 people? This was a shul that... 20 years could, earlier? They, 20 years earlier, they could seat 1,400 people for a Shalim Kippur. Yeah, they used to open up the back right, and, right. and all, when, I mean, all the way. All like, the way in the back. Like Uncle Moishi's seating. Like even way, more. Way, way over, First year uh, Uncle Moishi's seating, not, not recent years. No. You, you couldn't even get in yeah, the auditorium. No, right, yeah. right, and there yeah. were the Andy Frayne Ushers, if you have to be a certain age to remember Andy Frayne Ushers, but they were all there. That was KINS. So what happened was that KINS saw that the writing was on the wall. Something had to shift. At that point, there was a rabbi of the shul. His name was Rabbi Paul Greenman. Before he had come to the shul, he actually was the principal of the high school at Skokie Yeshiva. And Rabbi Greenman had wanted to get a machitz in the shul. In fact, he removed the microphone from the rabbi's podium because he didn't want to use a microphone on Shabbos. But the Balabatim didn't want to put in a machitza. I received a phone call from Josh's grandfather. I remember getting the call in my kitchen. Would you be interested in possibly coming to KNS to be the rabbi? And then there were a series of conversations that went on. One of my conditions, obviously, was 
I wasn't going to go into a traditional shul. I was going to go into an Orthodox shul. We'd have to mechitza. One of the great stories, which I'll tell again, Josh might not even know this about his grandfather. I'm sure I don't. There was a meeting of the shul about whether or not to become an Orthodox shul again. Now, KNS was the Sephardish shul on the west side. It was a very, very prominent Orthodox shul. When it moved north to West Rogers Park, it was supposed to be an Orthodox shul. But at the end... As happened elsewhere, they didn't install a mechit, so they felt it was necessary. And when he called me, those were some of the preconditions, and uh, he set up a meeting of the whole shul. So one is he had the daughter of one of the past presidents, who unfortunately had married out, come to speak. And she said, in the name of her father, who had since passed away, that my father would find it more important to become an Orthodox shul than to stay where we were and not change. And then he also made the ultimate pitch, which I have shared with many people over the years, and he told the people, would you prefer having the Yortzeit plaques in a church or in a shul? And they voted to become an Orthodox shul. The first Shabbos with the Mechitza actually was the Shabbos before I began, because one of the things I also insisted, Rabbi Greenman had wanted a Mechitza. And this way, his last Shabbos as a Rav, he had a Mechitza in the shul. So he was able to fulfill that before he left. This phone call that uh, you know from Josh's grandfather was it more of a call of merging shoals, or was it more of a call of hey, you come be our rabbi, and we're hoping people will follow? Right. You. The original plan was to was to do a merger. Whenever you make a change in any shul, so it was a merger. In other words, they were willing Origi- to sort of yeah. In other words. Their president would be co-president, I guess, with whoever was president of Yitzhak. I mean, there's two ways all, of looking at it. Yeah, hard hitting. Yeah, I mean, there's... there's, No, it's a good question. No, the the reality is not all the details were worked out. The original plan was to make a merger. Also, what happens whenever you uh, deal with shuls, any kind of change, as small as you might think they would be, creates controversy. And when they're big, they create even greater controversy. At Kins, we we need three people to open up the Aaron Kodesh. One on either side to pull the, the curtain, one to open up the doors or take out the safe for Torah. You can get six in. We had six at, yeah. our, at our bar mitzvah. I, mean, I, I, think, I think the question you all was asking more is like, was there still a minion at Beis Yitzchak or was that? Yeah, yeah. Shul? So there was two shows simultaneously. Well, it, 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 my no. question is really like the intentions. I mean, obviously there were some people who says, you know, we're not moving right. under and we'll just continue So doing originally the doing. intention was to be a full merger. When that was creating controversy, now I'll, I'll switch sides, Yoel's father-in-law, Zal, Shmuel Brandman, said nothing positive has ever been created out of a machloket. And so what he said is, release the rabbi from his obligations of Beis Yitzchuk, let him go to KNS, and whichever members want to go to KNS, we'll go over to KNS with him, and that's what, what ended up happening. Okay, so at the same time that this is happening, that you're growing into the role of a bigger congregation in KNS. Well, can, can I just... This is 94? Wait, this is I, the end of... This 94. Is the, just like the winter of summer, 90, summer of 94. Summer of 94, okay. Just to, just to keep on that, just for one more second. So this was sort of like a trailblazing event in Chicago history, I would say, right? For this type of merger to occur. Uh, for the change. For, for the, the change. For the change, right. Yeah. In fact, we were recognized by the OU... Most people don't see it. There's a plaque on the wall to the right of the entrance to the main sanctuary where that year the OU presented a, an award to KINS, Chadesh Yamenu Kikedem, the fact that we had been a shul with a mechitza that had taken out the mechitza and had then once again put a mechitza back so in. So was it, was it, like, did you feel contentious? You mentioned it earlier, but like when your first Shabbos, were there people that like were visibly upset, visibly angry to see the mechitza? Or was it more just people like, what are we going to do? There was a lot of conversation on how to try to make things better for people. So initially, 
for example, we had a chaz in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur because that's what people wanted was a chaz, and we didn't. We wanted to keep people comfortable. I did many, many more uh, announcements, or I had English readings during on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur to be able to try to keep people comfortable. But there was a mechitza. There was no moving on that factor. Most of the people st- stayed around. There were members of uh, KINS who left over that. The choir yeah. was ceased at that point. I think the choir may have, have may have ended earlier than that. I'm not sure. Okay. But was I, that but a fun what, memory of your childhood? It was. I was in the choir for two yes. years. Really? So we still have some of your robes. <laughs> <laughs> Blue I mean, robes. I mean, there was an attempt always to you know still give honor and you know kibudim and stuff like that to a lot of the you know the the former not the former members but the original members you know before. So there was always like that amount and you know like you mentioned you know there was you know announcements in english and page numbers which might drive some people crazy page like, numbers like still, myself still well, page numbers yeah but right like where howl can be found or show show yo <laughs> they still go back i don't, I don't know, know if you're all aware that i consider myself to have been the rabbi of a <laughs> briefly the rabbi of a traditional shul in chicago i do tell okay i took over the laning job when i was 15 or 16 years old from benny kirshner at ag beth israel Benny Kirshner leaned every week. The job was 100 bucks a week. And Benny had gone, uh, did a semester abroad in Australia. And it was the winter semester starting in January. I had it until the summer. Now, the winter at some of these traditional shoals, which the membership had declined greatly at the time, the average age of the members were probably up there in their 70s. Most of them went to Florida. So it was even hard to come by for a minion. And sadly, within a few weeks, I, I had lain there on occasion and filled in for Benny, but um, Rabbi Glickman passed away, a great man and a mentor of mine. He passed away. I, it must have been in January or February. And then I basically became the Shliach Tzibor, the Gabai, and the Balkore and the Rabbi, because I did speak at Shalshudas. And it was like 10 or 11 of us, and I knew everyone's name by heart, so I consider myself the last rabbi of A.G. Beth Israel. So <laughs> since you consider yourself, yes. and since I'm sure you always do your homework, of course. what does A.G. stand for? Anche Glitzianer. No. Austro Glitzianer. Austro Glitzianer. Yes, it was no. It was in Austin. Uh, no, it was on Hirsch and California in Humboldt Park. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Jordan. You'll get something right. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite episode. Yeah. Okay, so... I knew that Austria Galiziana. I'm so upset about that. Okay, Rabbi. So at the same time that you are now at Congregation KNS, you start taking a more leading role at the Ida Crown Jewish Academy. First as a teacher, I presume, but then also as the interim principal for a couple of years. Tell us about that shift. Well, that happened uh, in 1996. Rabbi Myers had stepped down. The Balabat team thought that they'd be able to find a principal very quickly. It wasn't so quick, and so they turned to the Associated Talmud Torahs. Rabbi Well had filled in between the period of time when Rabbi Blanchard had left for the one year and until Rabbi Myers had become principal. And so he turned to me and he said, your turn. And I said, fine, but one condition. I want to do it for a full year. I don't want to do it for six months, which is what they projected would be the case. I did it and uh, for the year. In the course of the year, they found another principal who uh, they, th- they felt would be able to take over. That person had a sabbatical coming from his previous position. He said, I'll, I'll do the job, but I want to have another year so I can have my sabbatical. So I said, fine, I'll do two years. He stepped in. It wasn't a good match. And as a result, mid-year, the Balabatim came back to me and said, it's really not working well. Everyone recognizes it's not working well. We need to make the shift, but we'll get somebody else. But since you know the operation, 
will you come back again on an interim basis? And the decision was that with the ATT that I would do so again. And I continued as interim for about uh, 16 years. Uh, <laughs> so, but, so there was a six-month break where you were not principal. Uh, a little less than six months. Yeah, uh-huh. there was a period of time. When so. you originally offered the position, I guess, as interim, did you want it? Did you want to earn the full-time principal? Or this was something in your mind like, I, I no, really I, don't want to do this. I'm I, just I, doing I, it to be a team player. I didn't plan to do it. I wasn't paid for it. I wasn't paid for it for several years in doing it. I was paid through the ATT, through the Associated Talmud Torahs. So now you know how you feel with the both jobs. Yeah, I was doing both jobs. <laughs> Not paid. Yeah, well, I agree with you. That's, and it's well done. And you earn what you deserve. But anyways, <laughs> having said that, he's a great Duff Yomi teacher, thank God. But the just, re- keep, just keep the R in front of his name. It's all he wants. <laughs> I was, I was going to ask about that because as I was trying to figure out when you became principal. There's all this. There was two years interim. And then I found this somewhat explosive article in the Chicago Jewish Star about this mysterious absence. And then, you know, this this person who had come in and then left after six months. And they were trying to find out the information, but it was very closed in terms of what, what were some of the things that were trying to be implemented in the school that caused the break? It just wasn't a good shidduch. You know, the reality is schools have culture. And he was coming from a very different culture in another city. And when you try to make those shifts, it doesn't always work well. And especially when you're dealing with a dynamic organization, which is filled with hundreds of teenagers. Is it hard? Because I know that, again, principal of a major high school and a rabbi of a major shul are two big jobs, I presume. So is it hard like when you're talking to people, whether it's congregants or students? Because like, you have to kind of wear two completely different hats, right? And I don't mean that literally, but... Being a principal is a certain type of mindset, and being a rabbi of a shul is, a, I would, I would think, a completely not opposite, but a, a, a different type of mindset. Right? I mean, both positions of authority, but they don't really go together generally. So, does that? Do you ever struggle with that in terms of like when you're talking to people, kind of figuring out how to best get through to them? No, I, I really think I actually am pretty consistent on both. The difference is when you're dealing with adults versus dealing with teenagers. Right. When you deal with adults. In school, you deal with adults in the shul, and the teenagers in the shul, you don't have that same kind of relationship as you would in a high school. That isn't so much of the the issue. The issue is it was harder to control. Uh, harder <laughs> to control. Well, I often describe running a high school as uh, trying to explain to parents that if you can imagine having a birthday party for nine hours a day for 174 days out of the year. For 200 children, you'll now know what it's like to run a high school. Most parents will tear their hair out after an hour birthday party. So the reality is that those kind of things, they, they complement each other. They're not perfectly the same, but they complement each other. And the only way I can do what I do is I have some very, very good professionals who work with me. And as a result, if there's something I need to have covered or there's something I need to be taking care of, it works. Which do you think has changed more under your watch? Ida Crowd Jewish Academy or Congregation K and S and how? That's a tough question. I think both have changed. I don't know which one is more. I think KINS, just from the previous conversation, we moved from a traditional shul where there was always a segment of Orthodox Jews who davened there. In fact, there was always a separate seating section on both wings of, or both ends in the front 
where only women sat or only men sat, even though the men sat, even though there was no mechitz at the time, to a shul where everyone goes to day school. There's no Hebrew school. When I first took over, there was still a Hebrew school that was left at KINS. So there's been massive changes. The fact that we now have a branch location is also a major change, that we've expanded a rabbi to create a rabbinic team versus me handling it by myself. So those are really big changes, and I think it continues to evolve. Uh, I'll go back to something again to, to mention something that uh, Shmuel Brandman, Yoel's father-in-law, had told me. They said, if you want to build an organization, there has to be learning, there has to be learning, and there has to be learning. Torah, 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 all the time. And I think we've been growing in those areas as well. In terms of Ida Crown, running a high school today is very different than when I first took over. When I first took over, I refused to sign checks. I said, I'm an educator. I'm not a businessman. Let the business guy sign the checks. Today, I'm the CEO of a $7.5 million operation. I sign the checks and I have negotiations on, on different business aspects as well as doing the educational aspect. So things have shifted drastically in the world, even the way things, even the way you think of things. You know, KINS used to have a rummage sale and there was a major fundraiser. It occupied the entire stage with all the I used to work the coat room during that rummage sale. Okay, <laughs> they had the rummage sale. You know, nowadays you can't run a shul with a rummage sale. Yeah. Okay, and when I, I had a crown when I first took over. I still remember, you know, the numbers of what was needed to be raised versus the number that needs to be raised today. It's a very different operation in both. I have another question. I don't mean to cut Jordan off, but I will. When Ricky was on, he made a comment that I found particularly interesting about the fact that he felt that a lot of the newer Balabatim that have come into money recently, uh, sort of whatever religious hashkafa, yes. hashkafa that they thank you that they kind of fit, they didn't really see a need to give to different types of people. And I'm not singling anyone out. I'm just saying that that was his feeling in general. So there's sort of this mantra that that I've definitely experienced where people think, oh, you know, they're modern, you know, they're, that's not what we want, and we want to veer more to the right. With the changing community and the changing city, do you find that true, that comment, in terms of what people are willing to look at in terms of donations, in terms of their support, their uh, involvement? What do you suggest to do in terms of counteracting that? I think there is a certain amount of truth to it. It's, it's interesting that in the modern Orthodox community, I think there is greater giving across the board than in the right side of the community. I think in the right side of the community, it's more within the right side of the community. Ricky is one of those great examples where every single day school gets the same annual gift, whether you're right or left. You get the same amount because he supports everybody. In terms of uh, how you deal with it, part of the reality is that, uh, and I've said this to some people who've said, how can I give Tide a crown? You're co-ed, you're modern orthodox, whatever they're going to say. I said, if we didn't exist, you'd have to invent us. And so I'm saving you a lot of money because we already exist. A strong community needs to have a lot of different options. And so I have students coming to Ida Crown from right-wing community where they just where the, the kids just didn't fit and parents were wise enough to say, even though this isn't what I had planned for my child, this is what's best for my child. And we have children coming from public schools that would never be able to get into the other high schools and would either go continue to a public school or to a non-Orthodox school. And the overwhelming majority, part of the big changes that's happened at Ida Crown, when I took over, it was probably a 60-30 split between kids coming from Orthodox homes, about 60, traditional and Orthodox, and about 30% coming from non-Orthodox homes. 
Now it's 95% of the students come from homes who are members of Orthodox schools, who will identify them as Orthodox, and about 5% who are not. The number of Hebrew schools have been decimated, and so there are very few kids. We're actively are trying to recruit well, public other school, high school kids. Also. There's other moral high school options. Well, there's a, and then there's right. a conservative right. high school that right. opened up. I was going to mention that because I am, I'm an alumnus of uh, the Skokie Salmon Schechter, which closed, uh, which we lament greatly because a lot of students, you know, from, from my time, including my older sister, was a graduate of Salmon Schechter in the, the middle school, and there were a lot of students that were going to Ida Crown I don't know how many it was, 10 to 15 or something? Yeah, we, my, no, my we class would have, probably 20%. You're right. You would 20, end up, 20, we would 30%. end up with having about 30% of the graduating classes from Schechter would, would come to Ida Crown. When Rochelle Zelf opened up, at that point, the hope was that the number of children continuing in day schools would grow, even though they weren't necessarily coming with the same percentage as to Ida Crown. We do know by all the research that if a child can, attends a Jewish high school, their continued involvement, giving, and likelihood of marrying Jewish is infinitely greater than if they go off to a public school. What percentage of the students at a crown go to a year, for a year in Israel? Uh, this current year, it's over 85%. I think it's 86 point something. Typically, we have somewhere between uh, 75 to 85%. Back in the day, you know... I Anyone who ever has, uh, you know, talked to me, you know, basically start, you know, talking about high school and all that. You know, I had a wonderful four years in high school. I wouldn't say it was like very meaningful, you know, on a like uh, being part of like you know the Jewish people. But when I, I remember, I went to what my niece graduated from there like ten years later, and you know, I, I never went to a graduation since I graduated. And then like I, I just remember like. It, like a click, like this school serves such a need, you know, in terms of, you know, Israel and the Jewish people and sending in Hebrew and like, and there's so many people from other backgrounds who would never have the opportunity. And like, it was, it was like real pride. Like I never took pride in my school. I had a lot of fun in school, you know, I can't really discuss it here, but you know, like I never really took pride in going to Ida Crown. And then all of a sudden, like you hear like, wow, like they actually do something special. And, you know, obviously, you know, they sent me on my path and many of my friends, you know, they sent on their paths and, you know, have created success, but you don't, sort of don't realize even, you know, what they instill in a lot of their students just from that age, so. A school is different than a shul in that in a shul, congregates come in mostly as adults with, sometimes they're choosing that place, but their their priorities and their philosophies are already molded. With students that are coming in at a young age, it's possible that their family is one way and they choose to send their child there, but a student coming in at the age of 14, there's a concept of, but there's also a school has to have its underlying philosophy and its message. What is your real goal when it comes to a student that's leaving Ida Crown and going off into the world? Where do you see them going? Well, first of all, I pray that every one of our students grows over the course of the four years, and not just physically, but <laughs> academically, spiritually, connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's step number one. Number two is after you, that we're preparing you for what is a logical next step. The overwhelming majority of our students, the next step is college. Every so often there are some exceptions. I pray that you have a connection, not only with Torah, but also with Torah Eretz Yisrael. And that's why we work so hard to have the students afterwards continue to Israel. When I interview them for freshman year, one of my questions always is, how many years is the Ida Crown experience? And the correct answer is five. 
four in Chicago and one year in Israel. So all of those pieces are there. Do you charge but, five years tuition also? Uh, we, well, they, the tuition in Israel <laughs> is higher than ours. Yeah. It's now higher yeah. than ours. Yeah. If there's any eighth graders listening, you know the answer now. Yeah, that one was just, if you, and if you are listening and you know the answer and you don't give me the right one, then we have a problem. <laughs> uh, but the reality is we want them to be ready for next steps. We're a middle ground. And what their next step is drives a lot of what we do. Have you seen changes in where students attend college and, and the Israel programs, whether it's in more traditional yeshivas or types of year course type programs out there and secular colleges as well? Is there a change and is that something that you support or not support? It, you know, what is your ideal? Well, it's, it's definitely changed and it's going to change even more. Number one is very few year programs in Israel exist that are under Orthodox auspices. Right. Very few of our students attend those. Generally, the boys are all going to yeshivot and the girls are all going to seminaries. That's one. In terms of uh, universities, about 30% of our graduates attend yeshiva university. There is a growing number of students going to Turo in New York, to Landers, and the reason is financial because Turo is so much less expensive. We are beginning to see growth in um, the University of Illinois University of Illinois has a, um, a from dorm. University of Illinois has three meals a day on the meal plan. It has an, an Eruv. It's got Minyanim. It's got things that it didn't have 10 a years ago. thriving away. Chabad also, I think. The Chabad, is, the Chabad owns that dorm. Right. right. It has things that it didn't have in the past, but the part of the reason they're going there is because of costs. The costs of university is so much out of control that we're going to see some shifts. So what we're also seeing now is more students after the year in Israel staying in Israel to do university. For those listening, uh, Machon Lev, the Jerusalem College of Technology, now has an English language college program, a half day of Beis Medrash, or a half day of Limud Kodesh for the girls, uh, separate obviously, but the half day, and then you get a college degree either in business or computer science currently, taught in English, and room and board and tuition is $5,000 a year. Wow. That was y'all. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, that, you know, those kind of things, or if you make Aliyah, after your year in Israel, Bar-Ilan, Hebrew University, all the state universities are free. Or if you go to IDC, it's still less than the day school tuition. Have you ever sent any boys straight from 12th grade Ida Crown to Hebrew Theological College in Skokie? There have been boys. Yeah, they go, there they are, go straight there? there? Yeah, directly not, there? Not, I mean, not, oh, you mean directly, not, to, not to Israel? Directly. I believe there was. I don't. Okay. okay. It's not. It's do, you not got, do they come for like you know college day and you know, all to present? Yeshiva, Hebrew Theological College comes to present, okay. and also so does Blitzstein Institute. I was a graduate from Hebrew, Hebrew Theological College, so so was Josh. I wasn't a graduate. I did learn there for a year. Okay, never mind. It's a dropout. Another L, Rabbi. What do you do for fun? I get to teach. I get to go to work. I get to uh, go on podcasts. But like, podcasts. I, I mean, I'm serious because you're so. I mean, you're in a position of, of authority all day long, right? Whether it's the, whether it's Shabbos, whether it's during the week, there must be at some point you're just like, I just I, I need to Cubs unwind games. somehow, right? Right, something. I mean, reading. What I like to explain to people is I have two hobbies. When I'm in the shul, my hobby is the school, and when I'm in the school, my <laughs> hobby is the shul, and it works. If you, if you love what you do, you don't have to look for something else. Sometimes I need to you know to take a a little time off. So okay, so if I take a little time off, I'll stay at home. And I'll read, I'll catch up on something, but Baruch Hashem, there's always something new you're, to do. You're busy. And busy. And very quick in responding to emails. Yes. <laughs> and I, I will say, it, the, Rabbi, in your living room, you have, it must be thousands and thousands of Sfarim. 
it's not the living room, but yes, it's in, the, in our back room. We have I have yeah, a lot nice. of time. Yes, <laughs> I, I did remember my wife once. This is when we first got married, and she was in TI, and she was doing some sort of paper. And her father said, "Oh, call Rabbi Matanki, and he'll tell you like which sources." And she called you, and you literally listed—I don't know—it was like four or five <laughs> different books. Like what page? And then, I mean, I, I don't want to get into what the subject was, but I remember like thinking, like, how does he know where? Like <laughs> these. First of all, how did he know where, which books were? How do you know the pages? I don't know if you cheated on that or if you, you just have a you know photographic memory or or i just may yeah. have had a, a portable phone in those days no I, I think it was like before internet you search on your phone it was like it was something where you couldn't just like google or right. like no know. i mean walk over to the book and yeah the page, that's all but it was yeah it was very right. impressive how are students different decades ago than they are now i know obviously you see a lot of stuff in the news just about the COVID had a big impact on students and their educational abilities, but then also just in general, in terms of what students are exposed to, what they have access to, what are the different struggles that you have as a principal that you didn't have 20 years ago? Well, the internet is a major difference. Access to information is a difference and you have to learn how to, to work with it. So there are some schools who say, we are going to shut you off from that. Ida Crown has always taken a different approach. We give everyone an iPad when they come in. We have wireless throughout the building. On average, every student is on two devices because we feel that when they leave our school, they're not walking into an environment where everything's closed off, so we have an obligation to try to teach them to use it the right way. When I'm teaching a Gemara share, sometimes I'll tell the kids, pull out your devices and look up this Gemara instead of once upon a time telling them to go somewhere else. So it's an advantage and it's a tremendous disadvantage at the same time. We don't know yet what COVID will do. You know, it's still a little early to see what the long-term impact of COVID is going to be. But there was an impact, and there's no question, because our population is day school, primarily day school students, because our day schools were open, the academic impact that, that COVID will have had on our students will be much less than they were coming from public schools. The other difference, I think, is on one hand, our students are much more exposed to the rest of the world, but on the other hand, they're calmer than once was. I'm thinking back to when I first took over as principal, when I first started teaching at Ida Crown, there were some really rough students in those days. Josh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember some of the shtick that people pulled. It was rough, and sometimes it was mean. And nowadays, it's a little calmer on that. And I, I don't know how to attribute it. I don't know if it's because the school culture is such. I don't know if the world, because the rest of the world seems to be mean. Well, do you think also, I mean, you know, back then, I don't think we ever heard about bullying. I mean, obviously, there was no, you know, online bullying, you know, cyber bullying and stuff like that. But like, I mean, there was like being mean, but there was never like a big like social, you know, organizations and schools, you know, discussing bullying Look, and the effects. It's more that. socially acceptable to be. Yeah, socially acceptable. Like, yeah, you just like well, yeah, there's, there's, you, you learn to live, live with it, and okay, if they're picking on you, you ignore it. Your parents didn't listen if you complained about it. Yeah, your parents are like okay, just you know, sure. grow with thicker skin. Like that's just how no, it was back in the day. But now I there's more of a stress. Like, well, there's also more support. You know, when I, there were a number of things I did in my first year as an interim, which was very unusual to do. I extended the school day because I. Wanted to make sure the boys. Past five thirty or five thirty-five. Now it's five thirty-nine. Okay. Um, the reason is because the boys were not learning Nach, and the girls only, if they wanted to take Torah Shabbat Pet or Gemara, they were only having a single period, whereas the boys had more Gemara. So I extended it so there was more equity in that. I hired the first social worker in the school. Now we have two therapists in the school. We have uh, six or seven people who work in academic services, which is pr providing for learning differences. We have four 
Jewish educators who are available the whole afternoon, who in a yeshiva environment would be called mashkichim, I call them mechanchim because I think it would be too pompous to call that mashkichim. But we have more services for kids, and I think that's one of the things that may have helped to, somewhat. It is a difference that I've seen as well within the kids themselves. Can kids leave anytime during school? It's an open campus. Open campus. I want to turn back to the role of a con- congregational and community rabbi for a second. Rabbi, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a pretty historic episode in Chicago Jewish history that some of our listeners might find interesting is the, is the saga of the Eruv, right? 1987, there were efforts to put up a, an Eruv in West Rogers Park that were effectively blocked by Varun Soloveitchik's leadership. 1992, Skokie worked on putting up an Eruv, and then... Later, I, I can't say which year it was that it did come to West Rogers Park and that when I understand and from the, the picture I'm looking at with Bernie Stone and Mayor Daly and yourself, you were a big part of, of that effort. How did you navigate the pushback and the, while also with the need for the Eruv? How did, you know, and being a younger rabbi dealing with opposition from, you know, great halakhic authorities, what gave you the courage to, to work and be behind the Eruv? Well, when the Skokie era was being put up, what happened was it was a sea change in Chicago because until that point, there was no Eruv. Rebaron Soloveitchik was opposed to Eruvim in major metropolitan areas, and no one did it. When the Skokie era went up, I remember meeting with Rabbi Schwartz, Zetzal, who was involved with the Skokie Eruv, and he said that it was not the same uh, municipality, and therefore he was going to help out with the Skokie Eruv, despite the fact that Rebaron Zetzal was opposed to it in Chicago. And Rebaron had great uh, covet for Rabbi Schwartz as well, even though he was younger. And he had told his Talmudim not to oppose Rabbi Schwartz at that time. When that was happening, I was, I think, my second year, maybe my second year, I believe, at the Beis Yitzchak. And at that time, uh, I realized that if we didn't put up an Eruv, it wasn't that we were going to have a problem in our neighborhood. And so I... Um, problem... The problem in terms of people wanting to move. move out. Okay. You have a choice of right. one, one Jewish neighborhood with an Eruv and one Jewish neighborhood without. And so we started working on it. The way I worked on it was I reached out to two colleagues, uh, Rabbi Yosef Weinkrantz, who was the Rav on uh, Morris in California, in the shul there, and, and Rabbi Zev Kohn, who was at Yeshurun at the time. And the, one Hasidish, one uh, yeshivashim, and one modern Orthodox rabbi, and we were working on it together. I also reached out to a, a dear friend of mine, Rav Herschler's son-in-law, Rabbi Liao Heishrik, Diana Liao Heishrik. He was uh, retired just recently from the Beit Din Elyon of the Rabbanut Rashid, And I asked him for some support in terms of getting Piskei Halacha about it. As a result, I met with Rav Ozner and his Bezdin. He gave support for it and sent his son, who was then based in Muncie, to help us with it. I met with Rev. Neubert, who was the author of the Shemir Shabbos Gilchosa, Rev. Zalman Nechemia Goldberg as well, and other major poskim, both in the Haredi world and in the uh, religious Zionist world, you would call it. And we received a series of chuvas that permitted it. Using all of that together with confidence then, and then we had some very good balabatim, including my brother, Robert Matanki, who was working on the engineering side and some of the legal pieces to it, we were able to put it up. There was a lot of opposition to it. Uh, and the opposition came from loyal Talmudim of Rebaran, who felt it was an affront to Rebaran. And Rabbi Schwartz stayed out of that out of that fray. I remember meeting with him in a very complicated meeting where I overstepped my bounds a little bit with Rabbi Schwartz. I apologized to him many times over the years 
for having done that. But we were we continued, and there was a lot of opposition. There was opposition. We kept the newspaper, Jewish newspaper, alive for a while just because of the ads. Is there pushback taking. from, let's say, Tells or Lakewood? I mean, I know a lot of them don't. Tells hold did, the Aru, Yeah, there was no pushback. Inside we had, right. So we had met with Tells with Avram Chaim Levin Zatzal, and uh, we had come to an agreement that he was not going to say anything opposed to it. It was based on his having consulted with his father in in Detroit about that, and so. Tells did not get invo- did not enter into that fray. There was a little bit of a pushback from the Lakewood Colon, not very strong. There was one issue which which developed, but we really worked. I met with all of the rabbonim in the in the neighborhood at the time. There weren't as many shuls, there were still a lot. <laughs> all of them signed on a document about what would be the conditions that there wouldn't be ball playing in public. And was that true? Because I know I remember Rabbi Zev Kohn. You know, I went to Yeshur and and he announced it, and it was like. One of those threats that you weren't sure was true, like someone has like a you know like their own home pool. They say, "Oh, well, if you go to the bathroom and it turns like you know blue or red, and like you're scared to go to the bathroom in the pool." So like they said, like if you're like if anyone's playing ball on Shabbos, like they're gonna take down the air roof. And I, I always like felt like nervous, like oh, imagine like I ruined the city because I was like playing at Rogers Park or something. Yeah. So what we actually at the beginning years we actually would take turns walking through the, the parks on Shabbos. Oh, so it, it was legitimate. Yeah, because we took it very seriously. That was. Part of the challenge, and uh, the Eruv going up has been very positive, but there's still major challenges for it. What happens in shuls today has changed drastically. You didn't have children's groups in shuls before they were Eruvim. Is that good or not good? I'm not so sure all the children's groups are always good because if you think about it, shuls which have children's group attract more members because they want to have children's groups. But when do the children learn how to daven in shul? They spend uh, all of their younger years in groups. Then when they hit about fifth, sixth grade, they stop because then they start going to bar mitzvahs and bas mitzvahs to those Shabbosim. Then they go to the high school minion. And then when they come back after their year in Israel, you're wondering why are they not going to shul anymore? Why are they going somewhere else? Because we never taught them how to be in shul. That's a great point. And I always thought like a kid just growing up, like you're supposed to run around and then until you just get bored, then you just well, eventually start typically diving. the rule was... That's how was that? I don't know. No, you had no a, groups. You, you sat with your father for a yeah. little bit yeah. and then he would release you. Right, correct. So generally around laning or if you yeah. if you nudged him enough a little earlier and then you'd run around and you'd come back again. Come right. back from us. Rabbi, I, I, it's, it's late. And I, thank you very much, by the way, for, for agreeing to come on. I had a question I'm just thinking of sort of like in my Yoel zone moment. I've heard a lot of your speeches on Shabbos. I think you're an incredible speaker. They generally are good timed, well thought out. Um, you don't you don't need me to tell you that, but more sort of like in a mild manner, I would say, type of approach um, where it's more just cognizant of sort of in a, clearly you you practice them, you wrote them out. Has there ever been a time that you can recall where you just kind of lit up the congregation, whether it was something going on in the community, whether it was something going on in your shul, that you can recall sort of being extremely passionate about? There have been various rushes that I've given that were passionate. My role as a rav is to teach Torah. And so my drushes are to teach Torah. I'm not a balmuser. I wasn't raised in that tradition. When I was in the yeshiva, we never had musr shmuzin. It only came to the yeshivas. There were two different rules, you know, ways the yeshivas worked. With Jordan can tell you all about that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but so that was not so that was not the model I came uh-huh. from. I do remember when um, there was a terrorist attack and it killed uh, Chayal, who, that that Shabbos I got up and I spoke off the cuff. Right. And that was a very emotional Shabbos. It was uh, because it was a very painful Shabbos. But uh, in general, 
my drushes are written in advance and they are timed because <laughs> I know I, I, I know you know Balabatim today have uh, limited uh, attention spans when I was growing up if the drusha wasn't at least a half an hour you felt gypped if you you'd never got out of shul before noon that was one of the outcomes of COVID that you never get out of shul anymore after 11.15 we cut out about 15 minutes sometimes 20 sometimes a half hour of shul and even the drushes I cut them back right. a little bit well, the rabbis I know is it's not muster necessarily, but he's very good at guilting. I know. <laughs> I've been caught a couple of times, you know, holding a little plastic cup in my hand in different locations and various places in the show. And he wouldn't have to say a word. He would just look at us and say, maybe away from the children. And then well, just walk away. They just walk out. So and everyone just stands there for around five minutes just looking at each other like... All right, I guess we're done. Well, All just right. to See give you guys you, into five months or but, six months. But to give you the reality of yeah. it, there was just there. There have been three studies done of high school students. The latest one just came back. I got the results this week. The most dangerous thing that the yeshiva high school students do, worse than in the public sector, is binge drinking and alcohol. That all the other things you hear about terrible things they do. Better than the rest it's of the worse than worse the front than schools? A, worse than the front that's, schools. That's a crazy. It's stat. worse than in the public schools. Okay, and uh, non-Jewish, you know, right, non-Jewish right. environments. So that's where my sensitivity for alcohol came from. Because all, all, all the other drugs that are talked about, they're small percentages. Alcohol is uh, a real danger that faces all of our. Do students. you find that just Shabbos? I mean, forget Kiddush Club, or whatever. During the evening, for, you know, forget about that for a second. Just you're, you're talking about. At the Shabbos table, you're talking about Purim, or you're talking about holidays, or across the board. In other words, regular it's regular binge drinking among high school students is much worse. A higher percentage occurs in yeshiva high schools. In yeshiva high schools in the New York sense, including the co-ed schools. So binge would be like over 25 shots, right? Uh, no, it's over. I think it's <laughs> I, I think over. Two? I think it's over four. Four shots. Over yeah. Four. And uh, but also regular having the best time. <laughs> but regular alcohol. This is serious conversation. It's my rabbi. <laughs> no regular alcohol use, and so that's why I get so sensitive about it because I think that we're the role modeling we're doing, but also the accessibility that we give the kids. True. As a child, I never thought about it, drinking. I mean, right. you because you're a child. Because your father wasn't drinking all the time, probably. Yeah, but why do my kids think about it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> Rabbi, before we let you go, I want to know, so what are your aspirations and goals for both Idacrod Jewish Academy and both Congregation KNS that you feel neither institution has reached that you would like to see? What are your dreams for both institutions? Well, I think for KINS, it's the continued growth and it's and it's continued programming that is Torah programming and also provide the social settings. We've done a lot of things. There's a lot of things happening, but I think we can do more and I think we can touch more people in ways to bring them closer to Torah. That's number one. I, I also think, by the way, Kins, one of the, the nice things about it is, and especially because we're in West Rogers Park, that it's part of the, the fabric of this community. It's not something separate. And so the very first speaker at KNS when we when I came there was actually Rabbi First. And the very first event was the Basiako girls graduation. graduation. And some of it was was very carefully done because we wanted to make sure that we part of that that fabric and to keep that fabric going. We need to build bridges. And KINS can build the bridges and I hope it'll continue to be part of those bridges, and I hope that other shuls and other segments of the community will also help with creating those bridges. So that's an aspiration. We've done a lot, but I think there's a lot more that can be done. In terms of Ida Crown, Ida Crown, you know, we have a tagline. How, how, mm -hmm. how large are the class? I'm just... 
Uh, the, Fascinated crowd. Right now, they're about 60 kids. 60, okay. Yeah. Our tagline right now it has been, for a while, inspiring Benam Torah to thrive in the modern world. I would like to continue to do that. It's not a simple thing anymore because going out in the world, people want to put you in boxes. And one of the nice things about the education we provide for the kids is as long as you're within the, the world of Torah, those boxes can be pretty big and great options for you. So we have students who are doing amazing things, both in the world of Torah exclusively and in the world which has a synthesis of Torah and the rest of general culture, and we should just continue to be proud of them. So that's the aspiration, to continue to grow. If in 20 years there was no Eidi Crown, there was no Kins, and all of us were in Israel, or there wasn't a need for these schools, would you be happy, would you be satisfied as a religious Zionist? If, if, we, that, if the community that, that associates with religious Zionism were all in Israel, would that be mission accomplished, or do you think we would still need those institutions here? Well, if we're all in Israel, that that's the ultimate success. Do I believe that when we will all be in Israel, we will have institutions that may mirror Ida Crown or in, in an Israeli version or, or mirror KINS? Yeah, I believe that's so. You know, the, the Purim spiel of this year, they were joking about franchising KINS and that there'll be a KINS in, in Israel, a few branches and elsewhere and all over. I think we have something very special to bring to the rest of the world. And it's not just people who don't know what KNS stands for, but it's for the rest of the world who really uh, want to be part of the world. Part of the success, I believe, of the modern Orthodox world has even been the fact that in the right-wing world, people are going to college, people are involved much broader. They're not closed off in the same way. Maybe that we created the opening for it. Maybe that there were ways that it works. So there have been a lot of successes that we've seen. Thank you so much for coming on. Yoel, any final thoughts? I always have final thoughts. <laughs> well, oftentimes, here, I'll give a final thought. Why fencing? I mean, you have, you have athletic Wait, teams. Why are you yeah. now? I'm just, it was just bothering me. Like, okay, I used to see them, you know, the track and field running around. I'll give them a pass. Because in my mind, even like wrestling was like a big push. You just have a basketball team and that's it. So the best fencing. part about it. I mean, fencing just seems like like a cheap way <laughs> so, to have like a sport. So you can like put it like on your college application. Like, oh, I was on the fencing team. Well, the best like, part about oh, it well was rounded. it came from the students. There were a group of students who wanted to do it. It's for the, sure a joke. No, the real, the best part about it was the one who really did it, who has been, is ranked internationally, <laughs> is a fellow named Spencer Brash. And so he was Spencer the Fencer. He was my oh, camper, right. emotional. Uh, okay. Was and he so Spencer, Spencer, I have no idea. Spencer presented to me a business plan of why it would, how it could work. And one of the things we do is if kids come up with a really good idea and they want to try it, we let them try it. And how large is that fencing team? Fencing team. <laughs> is there still one? Yeah, there's a girls' fencing team and a boys' fencing team. There's about a dozen and a half kids. On how the does it work? Team. Is it is it run by weight class? Is it like no weight two classes? On two? Weight classes. There are three different kinds of swords, and you pick which one you want to you want to fight with. There's it's all electronic with vests and uh, they have matches. It's a it's a very different thing if you think about it we weaponize our children did you ever think about doing it for the the kins misterhood fencing uh, i don't think we have enough no. strength Jordan, for it. play the music please wait we have there's many other questions that yoel gives the daf yomishir on a daily basis when he's not out of town and rabbi reese is filling in but Which, it's pretty consistent. But Jordan, I think that's the ultimate compliment to yes. Yoel. You look at who the substitute teacher is. <laughs> exactly. That's right. One, so one Yoel, rabbi Yoel, for another rabbi. Yoel has earned the right to 
provide I, I a am looking of forward to, I mean, not my final day giving the DAF, but I will uh, submit a bill to the office. For yeah, our, our pleasure to receive for, it. For, <laughs> for, for all, the, all the years. Okay, thank you so much, Rabbi. And we will play them off. Peace.